Alright, so finally we're going through the book of Revelation. So we're starting out in chapter 1. And kind of what I'm wanting to do as we go through this book is um, hopefully you know, answer a lot of the questions that are out there and a lot of the other prophecies. And so we're just going to kind of take this one chapter at a time, verse by verse, and hopefully uh, you all will have a pretty good grasp on Bible prophecy by the time this is all done. So let's go ahead and start reading in verse 1 of Revelation 1. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto Him, to show unto His servants things which must shortly come to pass. And He sent and signified it by His angel unto His servant John. Now that first verse right there, notice how it says these are things which must shortly come to pass. Now, I don't think 2,000 years is shortly. Okay? And... The preterist, uh, when we're going to deal with a lot of the false teaching in Revelation throughout the series too, and I'd like to briefly touch on preterism right now. Does anybody know what preterism is? All right, you know, preterism, they basically they believe that all these prophecies in Revelation, they've all been fulfilled. That they've already happened. That we are, the return of Christ already happened. That it was just kind of a spiritual return. And therefore, looking for these events are pointless. All of this stuff happened in 70 A.D. And that's just foolish. That's just wrong for many reasons. One, um, because I, I don't believe these things are spiritual. I believe these things are literal. But also because of the fact, too, that the book of Revelation was written after 70 A.D. See, and the thing is, they claim it was written before 70 A.D. And it was just like, you know, how do you know Revelation's all been fulfilled? You know, because it was all fulfilled in 70 A.D. Well, how do you know it was written, you know, how do you know it was written before 70 A.D.? You know, and they'll say, well, because it's already been fulfilled. And they'll use like a circular reasoning to point to 70 A.D. But the thing is, there are multiple historical sources that tell us basically when the book of Revelation is written. For example, we know in this book that John was exiled on the Isle of Patmos. And that was something that happened during the reign, I probably won't say the name right, of Domitian, who was emperor of Rome in 81 to 96 A.D. So that was many years after 70 A.D., after the destruction of Jerusalem. But they all—they just want to insist this was written in like 68 A.D., and therefore the shortly just means like two years away. This is going to happen. But that's just foolish. And, you know, Second Peter 3.8, it says, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. So yeah, it's shortly, but maybe not according to our perspective. Uh, but it is according to God's perspective. So these events in Revelation, these are things that are to come. I believe these are things that are to come. And so look at verse 2. This verse right here, uh, this is a key verse. I want to make sure you get this. And I'll probably remind you of this verse in later weeks as we kind of look at some of the events and as we look at the timeline of things. But look at this in verse 2. It says, "...who bear record of the Word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ..." of all the things that he saw. Okay? Understand when you're reading the book of Revelation, we are looking at the things that John saw. Okay? And keep that in mind because you know, everybody wants to make their own timeline, which is fine. You know, I've got my opinions on timelines. I'm all for doing that. But a lot of times people get their timelines messed up because uh sections that you could say overlap with each other. There's a lot of things repeated John is just giving us the things that he saw, I believe, in the order that he saw them. But it doesn't necessarily mean 
that it's the order that these things are going to happen. People will be reading it. So, see, look, it says right here, after this. Okay, yeah, after John saw this, John saw that. It doesn't mean after this took place, this event takes place. You see what I'm saying? It's just kind of like in a movie sometimes. When you're watching a movie, it'll show you uh, a storyline from one per- person's perspective, but then it'll go back and it'll show you another storyline from another person's perspective. And each one of those perspectives, it gives you more insight as to what's going on in the big picture, but it's not one continuous thing. Not every show is like an episode of 24. You know, where it goes one minute at a time through the whole thing. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you guess you're just less carnal than me. But, um, you know, that, that's not necessarily what we have here in Revelation. So these are the things that John saw. And understand a few things about what John saw because, you know, you know one of the reasons he's laying it out this way, John can only see one thing at a time. You will get that? John's not like God. They can declare the end from the beginning. They can see multiple places at one time. John can only see one thing at a time. And so, you know, some of the things that John saw too, we're going to see, they're not literal events, but they are symbolic of literal events that are going to happen globally. You know, for example, the, you know, vision that he has of the woman or the vision of the beast. I personally don't believe there is going to be some crazy beast that's going to rise up out of the sea somewhere. Okay, so what's that all about? Well, John can't see global events all at once, so God's kind of given this, given him this vision that represents global events. So you've got to keep all those things in mind because people do. They always want to, you know, take one verse, and this is what everybody does with false doctrine. They take one verse and they want to just take it out of context. They just want to run with that one verse. Well, look what it says right here. You know, this event has to be after this because it says after this. Well, not necessarily. John's just saying, after I saw this, I saw this. You know, after I watched episode four of Star Wars, you know, I watched episode three. All right. You know, using carnal illustrations again. You know, sometimes things are out of order, but, you know, we he's he's showing these things, I believe, in the order that he actually saw them. So just keep that in mind. That that's going to come into play later as we kind of look at some timelines of things. So, verse three says, "Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand." All right. Now, the imminency people would like to use that right there. The time is at hand. You will bring up Second Thessalonians two, where it says that where it's very clear the day of Christ is not at hand, but then they'll go to Revelation 1. Well, it wasn't at hand when Paul wrote 2 Thessalonians 2, but now Revelation 1 has been written. Therefore, the time is at hand. Therefore, imminency. Right? Well, not necessarily. Okay? What does it mean when he's saying the time is at hand? Because some of these same people that would use this verse right here to prove an imminent rapture, they'll try to tell you, well, you can't see the rapture in Revelation. Well, if the rapture isn't in Revelation, and it's saying the time is at hand, how do you know that that's talking about the rapture? You know, which is it? you got to take your pick, alright? Is the rapture in Revelation, or is it not? If they say it is not, then the time is at hand can't be about the rapture. And the truth is, I personally believe the time that is at hand 
which means it's about to happen or it actually could happen at any moment, are the events that the book of Revelation is talking about. The events that lead up to the rapture, all right? Those things are at hand. I don't know when the ball is going to start rolling. I don't know when the tribulation is going to start. But the things that are mentioned in the book of Revelation, there are several events that are going to take place before we get to the rapture. So the rapture is not at hand, but those events that that come before the rapture, they are at hand. And I believe any day all of a sudden we might start seeing the things fall into place. All right? I, and I don't know when that's going to be, but I'm watching. I believe the time is at hand. And he hasn't even got to the rapture yet. All right? he, he hasn't got the, he's, get, he's about to here real soon, but he's talking about the time of these events, these things that he saw, they were at hand. And so the time of the events written in this book are at hand. And the rapture is not the first event. Go ahead and go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Because I want you to notice how consistent the Bible is with itself in its timeline. We talked about this a little bit on Sunday. Just how uh, Matthew 24, 2 Thessalonians 2, and Revelation, the timeline is just identical. Everything fits together perfectly. But in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto Him. That is the rapture. This is the event that the Apostle Paul is focusing on, is the rapture. And he said that, "...ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand." Okay? The day of Christ, the day of our gathering, the day of His appearing, the day of His return. So let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he is God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. That's the abomination of desolation right there. And he, Paul's saying, the day of Christ is not at hand because these things have to happen first. So when we get to Revelation, it would make sense when it says the time is at hand, it's not a contradiction from what we see in Second Thessalonians. It's talking about different events. And the events that I believe lead up to the rapture, those events are at hand. I don't know when it's all going to start. I have no idea, but I do believe the time is at hand. But it is the day of Christ is not at hand because it's very clear in Second Thessalonians and Matthew 24 and in the book of Revelation that there are several events that come before the rapture. And the time of those events are at hand, but the rapture is not at hand. So, verse 4 says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you, and peace from him which is, and which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. So, Revelation, it was not written to the Jews, it was written to the seven churches in Asia. And you need to remember that too because of the fact one, many people will say uh, they'll put Revelation in the category of the tribulation epistles. You know, they'll say how the epistles of Paul, those are for the church, but then Hebrews through Revelation is for the Jews. That's foolish because of the fact that these were written to seven churches. These are specifically to seven churches. They're given to seven churches. And they'll say, but if you read chapters 1 through 3, 
you know, those are clearly to the churches. But all of a sudden, when it gets to chapter 4, it starts sounding very Jewish. I heard somebody say that one time. It sounds Jewish. What does that even mean? It sounds Jewish. I mean, people are so desperate to make this about the Jews and not for the church when it's written to the churches. It's given to the churches. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And what's John doing writing to churches? You know, I thought the Apostle Paul was the Apostle to you know, churches. We got a big problem there. What's John doing? You know, John's sheep stealing from the Apostle Paul. I mean, what's going on here? You know, interfering, maybe it's because Paul was dead during this time. But either way, you know, the Apostle Paul was the man for that. What's John doing writing to churches? You know, that's just more dispensational foolishness. But verse 5 says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood. So we, right there, this verse is, um, is very important because of the fact that many people, they try to make Revelation a, a book that shows a salvation that's by faith plus works. And you know, I'm, that's really a stretch seeing it's nowhere in the book of Revelation to begin with. But right here in verse 5, it's talking about Jesus Christ, the first begotten of the dead, meaning He was the first to rise from the dead, never to die again. Many people rose from the dead before Jesus Christ did, but they all died again, didn't they? Jesus Christ was the first one to rise again and uh, to have that glorified body, to have a body like we are going to have one of these days. Jesus Christ was the first begotten of the dead, and one of these days, after He returns... We are going to be risen from the dead. We're going to have that body like Christ. And so it mentions too how, uh, you know, He that loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood. Looks like Jesus did the work of our salvation right there. Is that not what we teach about salvation today? It's not about our works. It's about the work of Jesus Christ. We're not justified by our works. We're justified by His works. He washed us from our sins in His own blood. He gets full credit for our salvation. And it has been that way from the time of Adam until the final person gets saved. It is all about the work of Jesus Christ and what He did for us. So, you know, this, this, does, this makes it really bad. This is a really bad intro for a book that's supposedly for Jews in the tribulation who are supposed to start working for their salvation. It's like Peter Ruckman's track that he has, that he made for people in case they get left behind if they find it. One of the things he says in that track is start working your way to heaven. Well, I hope they don't read the book of Revelation then. Because if they do, they're going to get to chapter 1 and they're going to see a salvation that's all about the work of Jesus Christ and not their own works. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to miss it just like they missed it for the last 2,000 years because they've been trying to establish their own righteousness. He's just teaching them to make the same mistake they've been making for the last 2,000 years. Never trust anybody on end times who can't even get salvation right. Okay, That's just a good rule of thumb right there. There's a lot of seminar speakers like to go around. They like to talk about future things and supernatural things. You know, all there, all, there's all these internet people. Have you ever seen that Sid Roth at Supernatural? All right, that guy is a nut. All right, for, first of all, and the thing is, I mean, the guy speaks in tongues. For one, he calls Jesus Yeshua. You know, he's supposedly a Messianic Jew, and you know, he ta- he he's got a lot of the Jewish. He's into all the Jewish Hebrew root stuff. 
Never listen to somebody who doesn't even have salvation right. You will avoid a lot of problems and it will keep you from looking stupid if you just quit listening to people who don't have salvation right. Don't listen to Jews. Alright? Who cares? I saw another thing about the red heifer. You know, they got the red heifer. They've been doing red heifer stories for the last 30 years. For the last 30 years, the red heifer was finally born. And then... And the pre-trivers get excited about it every time. You know, you'd think after the 50th one that came, they'd be like, you know what? I guess they've had the red heifer for a while. But they do. They may, I mean, every few months, I see another story about the red heifer. Where are they getting this information from? From Jews. And they want to talk end time events and they get all excited and they wonder why they can't get their theology right. It's because they listen to people who don't even have salvation right. And that is foolish. And I don't care how smart some guy seems, if he does not have the doctrines of salvation correct, you definitely don't want to listen to him on end times. You are just foolish. You're, I mean, if you do that, you're as dumb as some of these pastors who are going out and getting Bible commentaries on the Old Testament written by Jews. You're an idiot if you're going to read an Old Testament commentary by a Jew who couldn't even, can't even figure out Isaiah 53. Why would you do that? They can't even figure out that Jesus was the Messiah. So just a little side note right there. And a lot of people, a lot of Baptists, are getting their theology on end times for a man who printed on a track for those who are, if you are in the tribulation, if you're after the rapture, start working your way to heaven. Why would you listen to a man like that? And let me tell you something. I love a lot of pre-trib people, but they have allowed themselves to look like fools with their stupidity they preach because they, they have allowed themselves to be infiltrated by rucktards and guys like Peter Ruckman who didn't, don't even have salvation right. And these are the guys that are leading people in Baptist churches. I mean, good preachers. Good preachers, they are so deceived by these people. I should start just naming some of these names. You know what they do? Whenever they get questioned by their church members on end times, they refer them to sermons by Sam Gipp. guy who says, he's not my Messiah. A guy who says that Jesus is not his Messiah, Baptist preachers are giving their church members CDs. Listen to this. He'll straighten you out on end times. The guy doesn't even have salvation right. All right and listen, Baptists, they get mad when we call this a heresy. Uh, you know, the pre-trib rapture. And when we call it stupid and we make fun of them. But you know what? That's what they get for allowing themselves to be infiltrated by these buzzards. And they just better get used to it. Because let me tell you something. For the next 22 weeks... I plan on pointing out the stupidity. I'm nice to pre-tribbers, but I'm not. I'm not nice when I'm preaching, and I don't have to be nice when I'm preaching because I'm just. I'm telling the truth right now. All right, the rest of the time I'm just. I'm lying when I'm being nice. So, anyway, verse six says, "And hath made us kings and priests unto God and His Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever. Amen." Our position with Christ is because of His work and not our works. He made us kings and priests. Okay? He did that. He washed us from our sins in His own blood. He made us kings and priests. This isn't about my ability or about my performance. This is something that Jesus Christ did for me. 
And so our position with Christ is because of His works, not our works. And then look at verse 7. This is a good verse here. Behold, He cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see Him, and they also which pierced Him, and all the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of Him. Even so, Amen. So right here is a rapture verse. This is the rapture right here. Some people will try to tell you this is Armageddon. Alright, and I'm about to destroy that teaching. Alright, this is quoting a verse from Zechariah that is a gotcha verse for them. To prove this is Armageddon, watch as I have fun absolutely destroying that theory. Okay, this is a verse about the rapture. I mentioned this Sunday. When Jesus Christ returns in the rapture, He comes in the clouds. When He comes at Armageddon, He comes on a white horse. Okay, rapture on clouds. Armageddon, horse. There's a big difference. Okay? There's a big difference. This is a rapture verse. This is not a secret rapture. This is not like on Left Behind movie when the girl's hugging her brother and he just disappears. That's not what this is like. Every eye shall see him when he comes back. That's not very secret, is it? And all the kinders, they're going to wail because of him. They're going to see Him coming in the clouds with power and great glory and it's going to freak them out. I have not seen one rapture movie that showed it like that. Not one. Yet it is spelled out right here that when Jesus Christ comes in the clouds, every eye shall see Him. But they want to make this an Armageddon verse because this is how they have all Israel being saved. They have all Israel being saved when they see Him. Which is stupid. Because that's not faith right there. And what about the rest of the world? You don't think the rest of the world is going to believe when they see Him too? You would think that, right? How come when the Jews see Him, they get to believe right then and they get taken up in the second rapture, but the rest of the world doesn't? You know, that actually sounds like respect of persons right there. That actually sounds like a salvation by race rather than a salvation by grace. I stole that. I wish I would have come up with it myself. But... That That is just foolish right there. But for, let's look at a few verses, all right? Let's see, look at some verses on the return of Christ and just watch for these things, all right? If it's talking about clouds, it's the rapture. If it's talking about a horse, it's Armageddon, all right? So Revelation 4, um, and, and also at Armageddon, he comes on a horse and he's coming with his saints, right? He's coming with his saints. So in 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Rapture Armageddon. Alright, that's rapture. He's in the, we're in the clouds. Look at this one. Jude 1.14 And Enoch also the seventh from Adam prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of His saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. So which one's that? That's Armageddon. Okay? Matthew twenty four twenty nine. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven shall be shaken and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. That actually sounds just like what we read in Revelation 1.7. 
And they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels the great sound of a trumpet. And they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. What's that one? That's rapture. Okay? On, he's gathering together his elect. Alright? He's gathering the saints. In Jude, that verse, in Armageddon, he's coming with his saints. He's coming to execute judgment during that time. In the rapture, he is coming for his saints. At Armageddon, he's coming with his saints. And we do not see him coming with his saints here in Matthew chapter 24, which people also want to say this is Armageddon. We see him gathering up his saints during this time, exactly what we see him doing in 1 Thessalonians 4. Matthew chapter 26, verse 63, it says, But Jesus held his, pe- held his peace, and the high priest answered and said to him, I adjure thee by the living God, that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power, and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need have we witnessed? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. Alright, reminds me of a modalist right there. You know, always accusing you of blasphemy when you didn't even say anything about blasphemy. That's something that they like to do. But what was this here? Is this rapture Armageddon? This is the rapture. He said, you're going to see him coming in the clouds. And listen, these are the people that are getting ready to crucify him. And he's saying this to them as a bad thing. Okay? Now, if Bill Grady would have been there, he'd have told the guy, hey, don't worry, this is a good thing for you. Alright, this is a good thing for you, because when he comes, you know, you're going to believe then this is when all Israel is going to get saved. Now, buy my book, and you know, you can find out how, how the land belongs to you. That, I mean, that's what Bill Grady would say. But Jesus is saying this as a warning to him. Listen, when Jesus Christ returns in the clouds, when he comes, there, it's not going to be a good thing for Israel. They are in big trouble, and I mean physical Israel. I mean Christ rejecting Israel. It's going to be very bad for them. They are going to mourn. They're going to look on Him whom they pierced, and they are going to mourn for Him. So this here, is, that's another verse that's clearly about the rapture. Jesus coming in the clouds. And it is a bad thing for Christ rejecting Jews. So look at verse 7 again of Revelation 1. Behold, He cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see Him, and they also which pierced Him, and all the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of Him. Even so, Amen. Now go to Zechariah chapter 12. Let's go to a gotcha passage of those suffering from severe, uncurable ructardation. Alright, let's look at what they like to do with Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 12. It says in verse 10, I will pour, and I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him, as one that mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him, as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem, as the mourning of Hadad-Rimmon in the valley of Megiddon. And the land shall mourn, every family apart, the family of the house of David apart, and their wives apart, and the family of the house of Nathan apart, and their wives apart. Okay? This is the rapture. Now, they say it's Armageddon. Okay, now why do they say it's Armageddon? One, because they desperately need it to be Armageddon to fit their theology. But here's where they will act like they got you. Okay, and this is just their ignorance. This is just their biblical 
ignorance. It's their, they're ignorant of Bible history. Because notice what it mentions there in verse 11. It mentions as the morning of Hadad-Rimmon in the valley of Megiddo. Does anybody know what the valley of Megiddo is? Armageddon. The Megiddo Valley, Armageddon, same place. So you mean tell me this isn't talking about Armageddon? Because it's mentioned right there. But wait, let's, let's look at what it's talking about. It says, in that day, there shall be a great morning in Jerusalem as the morning of Hadad-Remen in the valley of Megiddo. It's saying in that day, when every eye shall see him, there is going to be a morning that was like a morning, something that happened before. What is this event that it's talking about? It's their historical ignorance of the Bible. Of Bi- not, and I'm not talking about historical, as in history outside the Bible. I'm talking about in Bible history. Alright? That is in the Bible. Okay? And, you know, the old I have beat in their ignorance of the Scriptures, they have allowed the Ruckmanites to take them down another one of their rabbit trails. And listen, there are many Old Testament passages that they could easily pull out and use as like a gotcha verse. And if you're not real familiar with that specific passage, they might be able to defeat you in the argument. But if you actually take the time to look at context and to study these events it's talking about, it gets debunked every time. And this is a big gotcha passage. So let's look at this. Because it's not saying this event that's happening in Megiddo, in the Valley of Megiddo, is something that's to come. It's saying it's going to be, they're going to mourn like a, a mourning that took place there. What event was that? Go to Second Chronicles chapter 35, verse 22. This is something that already happened. Alright, the morning that happened. It says, Nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguise himself that he might fight with him, and hearken not unto the words of Necho from the mouth of God, and came to fight in the valley of Megiddo. And the archers shot at King Josiah, and the king said to his servants, Have me away, for I am sore wounded. His servants therefore took him out of that chariot and put him in the second chariot that he had, and they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died and was buried in one of the sepulchres of his fathers. And all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah, and Jeremiah lamented for Josiah, and all the singing men and the singing women spake of Josiah and their lamentations to this day, and made them an ordinance in Israel, and behold, they are written in the lamentations and the rest of the acts of Josiah and his goodness according to all that was written in the law of the Lord. You all see it? Josiah was a good king. He was somebody who did a lot of good things, and he fought a battle there, and he died, and a great mourning took place. You have Jeremiah making lamentations for him. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. This was a very sad day for Israel. And so right here, in Zechariah, it's saying in that day, when they look on him and they pierce, they're going to have a mourning like they did in the days of Josiah. He was referring to a specific event. And so just because the valley of Armageddon is mentioned right there, it doesn't mean that's talking about the battle of Armageddon. Because I got news for you, and this is something to come later on, this battle that happens at Armageddon, it doesn't happen at Armageddon. All right? where the blood flows of the horse's bridles does not happen in the Megiddo Valley. It happens in the Valley of Jehoshaphat. That is a completely different place. The armies are just gathered there in one story. And I, that, that, that will come in a later week. But once again, just Bible ignorance. Bible ignorance. 
And people will see that. They'll see that in Zechariah. Oh, it mentioned Megiddo there. It must be talking about Armageddon. The rock tribes are right. No, that's referring, it's saying the morning is going to be like the morning that took place in this event that you forgot about from Second Chronicles chapter 35. That's why you got, that's why you got to study. Alright? That's why you got to study to show yourself approved to God. That's why you got to rightly divide the scriptures in the biblical sense of rightly divide and not the Ruckmanite, you know, Darby, Schofield, you know, method of, you know, wrongly dividing the scriptures like they do. So, look at John chapter 9 verse 19. In verse 34. So, some people, and I've had this question come up to me before. So, it, clearly, in Zechariah 12, or Zechariah mentions they'll look at him and they pierce, talking about the rapture. Revelation 1, clearly talking about the rapture. In John 19:34, people get confused about this passage. It says, But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bear record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith true that he might believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him should not, shall not be broken. And another scripture saith, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Alright? So wait, hasn't that already happened? Because right here it says it was fulfilled, right? No. The scripture was fulfilled that a bone of him would not be broken. But then it says, another scripture saith, they will look on him whom they pierced. Well, why is it mentioning that? Because there was a prophecy in Zechariah that they will look at him whom they pierced. Who was that? When Zechariah gave that prophecy, they hadn't pierced him yet. So whenever John is writing here, he's showing, hey, this is a part of that prophecy. That one that you pierced that you're going to mourn for one of these days was Jesus Christ. He didn't say that scripture was fulfilled, but you all understand part of that scripture, that scripture, part of it actually took place. The part where they actually pierced someone. So that, John 19, is not showing that verse as being fulfilled. Otherwise, it wouldn't make sense that in Revelation, it hasn't come in the future. This is just showing and letting them know, hey, the one who is pierced in Zechariah was Jesus Christ. This is, this is the event right there. So, Zechariah's prophecy was not fulfilled, but this prophecy was mentioned because when Zechariah made that prophecy. Christ had not been pierced yet. So look at verse 8. It says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible has always been about Jesus. It's always been about Him from the beginning. He's the beginning of the story. He is the end of the story. This is His story. This is about how He brought salvation to man. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he did it all. It was Jesus that was with the church in the wilderness. It was Jesus Christ that died on the cross. It's Jesus Christ that's coming back. It's Him that's going to rule and reign in the millennial reign of Christ. So verse 9 says, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So the title John, who is your brother in tribulation, makes it really hard for you to say that tribulation is the wrath of God. Because listen, we're not appointed unto wrath. But John said, I am your brother and companion in tribulation. Now tell me, how does that work if we are not under the wrath of God and tribulation is wrath? And John 
call, t- writing to the churches, says, I'm your brother and companion in tribulation. Now, I know he's not talking about the tribulation right here. But understand, we own tribulation. Except for the great tribulation. According to the pre-tribbers. Now, listen, we own it. We own tribulation. And John here, he's saying... So, think about this. This is the book about end times. And we're supposed to all just think that tribulation equals the wrath of God. Well, John should have used a different word when he referred to himself as your brother and companion in tribulation. That's just a very foolish argument. Tribulation and the wrath of God are not the same. And Christians are not appointed unto wrath, but we are appointed to tribulation. John 16, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. In Revelation 2, verse 10, talking to the churches, it says, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. But be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. So, if this book is written to the churches, and churches aren't supposed to go through any tribulation, why would he be telling somebody in chapter 2, you're going to have tribulation ten days? You know, how come these people are, well, wait, we're not under wrath. Okay? Because tribulation and wrath are not the same things. That is just another massive pre-trib blunder. A massive blunder that is that they, they literally cannot recover from. And they never will. It, it is a fatal error, one that they have really let um, mess them up. So as believers, we do. We own, we own the tribulation. That's ours. And notice too what it says. Um, it says, I, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. Okay? I'm not going to spend any time on this right now, but that is a key word right there too that we'll refer to later. Because the Bible talks a lot about the patience of the saints. Okay? And whenever we read about patience, it's in Paul's epistles it's like this. Patience, when the talk, Bible talks about patience, it's often referring to us enduring tribulation. And us enduring it patiently. That is what we are supposed to do. Tribulation and patience, they kind of go hand in hand. And that, that is a key thing we've got to understand. Everything that John is saying in here, it gives a very strong impression we're going to be dealing with some tribulation. But somehow today, people are reading, they're reading the book of Revelation and thinking we're not going to have any tribulation. How do they get that? Because they're not going verse by verse through the Bible. They're reading college textbooks. They're reading other books written by a man and that's where this foolishness is coming from. So, uh, verse 10 says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet just meaning it's very loud. Okay, This is not a trumpet blast. Remember that when we get to chapter 4. This is a voice as of a trumpet. It's very loud. Trumpets are loud. Saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what the is, write in a book. Alright, there it is again. What you see, write in a book. Alright? He didn't say, write a chronological you know, list of events as they're going to take place. No. I'm going to show you some things. And as I show you things, write them in a book. Okay? And that is what he's doing. And so there are going to be things that overlap, that are repeated, and everybody would do, everybody wants to make it, you know, all just, you know, so simple or whatever, you know, but it's just, 
You've got to get the right perspective when you're looking at these things. And let's, we want to look at it the perspective of John as the things that he is seeing. And so many events are going to be repeated. So, um, it says, and send it into the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. So why do you write it to seven churches like that? Well, one, I believe he wrote it to these seven churches because of the fact that, you know, he wanted them to have it. I think, you know, he's got specific things in there for each of those churches. But, alright, this is also another sign too of replacement theology. Okay? Because what is it you hear all the time? The Bible's a Jewish book written by Jewish men. You know, we, you know, we have these, you know, Brian Sharp and these people, they go around thanking Jews for giving us the Word of God and for, for preserving the Scriptures for us. The Jews did all this for us. Well, not the book of Revelation. It wasn't committed to the Jews. They were not committed, this oracle of God. It was committed to the seven churches. And thank God it has stood this test of time. And I think that was one of the reasons he did it. Sent it to seven different places to help preserve it. And God has miraculously preserved his word. And thank God we have a copy of the book of Revelation. And so that I believe, I believe that's one of the reasons he sent it to the seven churches like that. So... Um, you know, I, you know, and so part of that too, having the seven copies, it's also a good sign that it's of the validity of it. You know, if just one person brings up forth a letter and say, I've got this letter from John. Well, are we sure it's from him? Well, then if six other people come forward and they have something saying the exact same thing, then there's, there's a good sign that it's for real. So verse 12, look, verse 12 says, and I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, uh, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. And his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burn in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters." And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. So right here, we're looking at the first thing John sees. Okay, He's just been told, write down the things you see, and here's the first thing he's looking at. Here's the first uh, thing that he is seeing. And what is he looking at? He is seeing Jesus in his heavenly form. That's what's going on right here. He's seeing Jesus in his heavenly form. He sees seven candlesticks. He sees seven stars. He sees a sharp two-edged sword coming out of the mouth of Christ. What do you think that represents? The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And I think, I think John is actually seeing a sword come out of his mouth. Okay? He's writing what he's seeing. This, this is what he's seeing. All right? Do we see an actual sword come out of Jesus' mouth? I wouldn't be surprised. I, I, or is that just symbolic? I don't know. This is what John is seeing. John is seeing a sharp sword come out of his mouth. And so verse 20, I'll jump down to verse 20 real quick, because this explains what the seven stars and the seven candlesticks are. It says, The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. So the seven stars, 
seven angels. All right? An angel can often be a messenger. It could be, some people believe it's referring to the pastors of those churches. Some people say, well, every church has an angel. Alright? Now, at the end of the day, I'm not going to worry a whole lot about what the angel of the church is, whether it's a messenger or an actual angel, because the truth is, this passage, it's not trying to teach that every church has an angel necessarily. You know, but I, I personally think it's probably just talking about the pastor, the messenger. Because of the fact, too, this letter, it's written to the seven churches. Well, who are they probably going to give it to? They're going to give it to the pastor. And what's that pastor going to do? That passenger is going to deliver this message to the church. He's going to be the messenger. And so, I, I, I personally believe it's the pastor. You know, I'm not going to make a huge deal out of it. And then, of course, the candlesticks are the churches. And I'll probably say a little more about that uh, in, in the next couple of weeks, because I believe a church can have its candlestick removed. I believe that there are assemblies of believers that are out there today whose candlestick has been removed. They are called a church. They meet together like a church, but their candlestick has been removed. God no longer is using that church anymore. And if every church does have its own angel, I think when their candlestick goes, their angel goes too. That's what I personally believe. If they, if the, if that's the case, and I, I might say more about that uh, next week, but uh, look at Isaiah chapter six, or let's read verse seventeen first. It says, and, I, "And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last." Once again, it's all about Jesus. And then Isaiah chapter six, go ahead and turn over there. The sight of Jesus Christ is in His heavenly form is one that brings people to their knees. It's one that's going to you know, knock people on their face. It's one that's going to freak the world out when they see it. And rightfully so. When Jesus Christ came to earth the first time you know, and He lived a life as a normal man, you know, there, He had no form or comeliness. There was nothing about Him that we would desire. You know, there was nothing special about His appearance when He was on earth the first time. But now in His glorified state... There is something very special about it. But look at what it says in Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. Above it uh, stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face. With twain he covered his feet. And with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of Him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So the, the sight of Christ will cause every knee to bow. It is going to be a sight to behold. And I personally believe that this you know, image that John is seeing, I think is one that, is, that he had actually seen before. On the Mount of Transfiguration. Look what it says in Matthew chapter 17, verse 2. It says, And was transfigured before him, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. Right there we see Jesus Christ explained very similar to what we see in Revelation chapter 1. What happened at the Mount of Transfiguration? As he gets ready to talk to Moses and Elijah up there on the mount, I believe Jesus Christ took on his heavenly form. And you know what? He was able to do that while he was on earth. 
You know why? Because Jesus was holy while He was on earth. We cannot take on our heavenly form right now. We're too dirty right now. Our vile body has not been changed yet. But Jesus was able to do that while He was walking the earth. You know why? Because Jesus was holy. Jesus never had any sin in Him at all. And so, notice though how it's mentioned, how His face shone like the sun. Here it mentions, you know, um, His face shining like the sun. And then in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, it says, And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. And at that time, thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. What's going on right there? This is the rapture. Alright? The Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with the shout, with the voice of the archangel. Gabriel? No. Michael is the archangel. Gabriel is never referred to as the archangel. All the songs have it as Gabriel. Alright? I can almost hear the trumpet as Gabriel sounds the horn or whatever. It's Michael. Alright? Michael is the archangel. Not Gabriel. Okay? Michael is the one that stands up. And notice how it mentions those who be wise, those who rise from the dead, the dead in Christ rise first, they are going to shine like the brightness of the firmament. What's going on? Okay? 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. When Jesus Christ returns, the saved who are alive and remain, when they see Him, they are going to be changed. In a moment, twinkling of an eye. What are they going to be changed into? They're going to be changed into, their body's going to be changed into one, like His glorious body. What does that mean? His body shines like the sun. We're going to shine like the sun. So, right there is what that's talking about. You see none of this in a pre-trib rapture teaching. They, they have to ignore all this stuff. They don't have us changing like Him and shining like the brightness of the firmament. If they mention that, we might tie Daniel chapter 12 into our rapture. They just have us vanishing. Why? Because that's the way the Thief in the Night movie did it. It was in the 70s or 80s when that came out. 70s. The 70s is what... That is when, you know, this crazy eminency pre-trib stuff just got mass-marketed, mass-produced, I mean, massively hyped. And these the people from that generation are still not over it. Yeah, Late Great Planet. I never saw that one. I've heard of that one, though. Oh, that's a book, yeah. That How Lindsay? Yep. So, they still haven't got over this stuff. And you know, you can show these people all the Bible and this stuff, but they just, what do they do? We ain't changing. All right? That's my ringtone on my phone. That is the ringtone on my phone. We ain't changing. All right? And I just do that all the time because it's a funny ringtone. But it's just, it's how these people are. They're stuck and stupid. All right? They're double-minded. They are double-minded. The same crowd. Show me where I'm wrong in the Bible and I'll change. They have whole conferences that all they're doing is encourage them, don't change, don't change, don't change. Yeah, but we're dead. We want revival. Don't change. Yeah, but maybe we're dead and we need revival because there's something wrong with us. 
how are we going to get revival if we don't change? They can't figure out what they want to do. And so they can go ahead and they can keep screaming, we ain't changing all they want. And you know what? They're going to stay dead. They're going to stay as dead as a doornail like they are now. And some of them, there's no coming back. Some of them already had their candlesticks removed. There is no coming back for some of these people. They are dead as a doornail. And some of these people have a lot of people coming. That's because they're community fund centers. All right? Wait, listen, when your church, when you have to have a Halloween party to get a crowd in on a Wednesday night, your church is already done for. Okay? Just mark it down. Your candlestick's gone. Your church stinks so bad that you have to have a Halloween party to get your people to come in on Halloween, let your kids all dress up, things like that. When you got to do all the junk the world does, mark it down. Your church is already dead. I don't care a big bunch of people came. Listen, our community has events like that that a bunch of people come to. It doesn't mean the Spirit of God's in them. When you got to have rock concerts... Okay? When the only way you, I mean, when the, the things that they do, the only way they can get lost people in their church is they got to bring lost people in to honor them. What do they do? They bring in the policemen, they bring in the firemen, and they, they give them plaques and stuff. Because it's the only way they can get these people in their church. It's because they are dead as a doornail. When you got to resort to these tactics, okay, just mark it down, they're dead. And it's time somebody just bury their rotting, stinking corpses. They're no good anymore. They are done for. And just mark it down. Any church, and I saw some. Halloween was last week. Saw some Baptist churches having their stinking Halloween parties. They don't call it that. They just call it something else. They have all their kids dressed up in costumes and things. Come to church. Just mark it down. You're dead. And you know what? Scream, we ain't changing all you want. You know what? Dead people don't change. Not for the good. They just rot even more. I'm going to be around a bunch of stinking corpses. And so they're going to have to get out. They're, they're going to end up getting out of there. And it's happening. They're exiting these places fast. And so all these things were showing. I mean, these things just prove post-trib rapture. And the pre-tribbers just have to keep ignoring the details. Look at verse 18. It says, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Okay, Jesus Christ was dead. The second death is the lake of fire. Death is when we go to hell. All right. Jesus told Mary when her brother was dead, Lazarus, he that believeth in me shall never die. Okay. Jesus Christ tasted death for every man. That means he did it for us. So when we die physically, the Bible says for us to be absent from the bodies, be present with the Lord. The Bible says we don't taste of death. Okay. The Bible says those who are saved, the second death hath no power over them. If Jesus Christ was dead, what does that mean? It means he was in hell. That's what that means. There, there's no getting around that. There's no two ways about that. And you know what? And he got the keys of hell and of death. You know why? Because he defeated death. He conquered death. And because he did that, we will never have to experience that. Death has no power over us. So Christ holding the keys of hell and of death shows that He is the one in charge. The guy with the keys is the one in charge. He, he's got it. It held Him, but only temporarily. Acts 2.23 says, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken Him by wicked hands, have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, 
because it was not possible that he should be holding of it. Okay, well, if God loosed him from the pains of death, because it was not possible he should be holding of it, means it was holding him for a little bit. Okay, and pains of death, we don't experience that Jesus did. Bible's very clear on that too. It's funny, and it, the Ruckmanites and a lot of preachers are vehemently fight that teaching. But listen, Jesus Christ is He who was, was dead. Jesus was dead. He died for us, meaning He died and went to the place of the dead, which is hell, and it wasn't a good place. All right, it was it wasn't a paradise down there. It, otherwise, why would it say he was loose from the pains of death? Okay? You go, they've got all these brain scan technology and things they can do. Dead bodies are not suffering pain. Okay? That is not a reference to him being in the tomb. It's a reference to him being in hell. That's just uh, more foolishness from these people. Verse 19 says, Write the things which thou hast seen. Alright? That's what he just saw. Referring to seeing Jesus standing there in that glorified state seeing the seven stars, the seven candlesticks, write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are. I believe that's a reference to you know, chapters 2 and 3. He's writing in present time and the things which shall be hereafter. I believe when he gets to chapter 4, he starts writing about the hereafter. He's writing about things that are to come. So Jesus, he's telling them all those things. And so if the things that are are the things that are written to the seven churches, so that kind of defeats the whole seven church age foolishness, which we'll talk more about that in the next couple of weeks. Those are the things that are. Those are the things in his present time. He was writing to seven literal churches that were around during that time, and he was writing about things specific to them. These were not about things that were to come. That is just another dispensational goofiness, as all that is. So the book of Revelation, it is a revealing of Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is something that He is revealing. And it reveals, it reveals some things to us right now. It reveals, we, re, see, we learn more about Jesus Christ than was, had previously been known. We understand things about Christ that before Revelation was written, we didn't know. Was, and so, but it's about time, but, it is about a time where even more of Jesus Christ will be revealed to the world. Okay, the revelation of Jesus Christ is coming when Jesus Christ reveals Himself to the world. And when we see Him, when Jesus Christ does reveal Himself to the world, we will be like Him. But when the world sees Him, they're going to mourn. Why? Because they know they're in trouble. And where the Rogmanites want to say that all the Jews, while the rest of the world won't, the Jews are all just going to you know, get saved and believe on Him. Actually, what we're going to see, whenever Jesus Christ does return, you know what we see man doing? They're blaspheming Him. Okay? They, they're going to blaspheme Him. That's what they're going to do because they are going to be, they're going to be damned at that point because they believe not the truth but had pleasure and unrighteousness. They are going to be in big trouble during that time. So the book of Revelation it is it's revealing of Jesus Christ. He, Jesus is revealing some things and we're learning more about Jesus. We're learning more about God in this book. And so the things that uh, we're going to be looking at next week, those are the things that are that were during John's time. And then after that, we're going to see. 
I pray that uh, we'll learn a lot from it and that will be a help to us. And I pray that you'll just bless each one for it. In your name we pray. Amen.